Welcome, weirdos. I'm Darren Marlar, and this is Weird Darkness. Here, you'll find stories of the paranormal, supernatural, legends, lore, the strange and bizarre, crime, conspiracy, mysterious, macabre, unsolved, and unexplained. Hey folks, I'm here live at the Chicago Paranormal Conference, Paracon in Summit, Illinois, just outside of Chicago. Now, if you want to get some details on this, you can find the link on the events calendar at WeirdDarkness.com with all the details. We're going to be here until 6 p.m. tonight with all the other crazy people who just love creepy, strange, macabre, and supernatural stuff. It's only a dollar to get in the door, and you can come see me at my table. Plus, you can check out what other, what 40 other vendors have to show off that are beyond the weirdo scale. You got paranormal investigators here, psychics, aura readings, tea leaf and tarot readers, plus there are raffles throughout the day. Got some live music and food as well. So if you have some lunch plans or don't have lunch plans, that is, well, now you do. Some of the speakers uh, today, you got Mike Hellman, Rob Calvin, and Francesca Kelly. They are some seasoned paranormal investigators here in the Chicago area who have done a lot of investigating in Chicagoland, and they're going to discuss their personal experiences, equipment that they use, and the nature of ghosts. Dr. Bill Casales is here. Uh, he's regarded as a Mothman expert. He's the founder of the Science-Oriented Phenomena uh, Phenomenology Research Partners. And whenever he can, oh, well, the good doctor talks about Mothman until he's blue in the face. You'll also be able to see another podcast here today doing their thing, Ghostly. Uh, it features Pat and Rebecca, and uh, Pat is a science-minded skeptic, quick with a joke, and Rebecca is the witty believer. So you can see them discuss and banter and bicker live while they're here. Uh, Bishop Christina Rake is here from the uh, American Apostolic Old Catholic Church. She's the author of God and the Paranormal, Mediums, Ghosts, and the Afterlife in the Bible. And she's going to discuss her encounters with demonic possession and a history of demonology. And also Dr. Martina Castina, Dr. Marina Castina, she's going to discuss uh, parasitic entities, attachment, and uh, attachments and energies. It's going to be a great day, and you can tell it's very very loud in here, but I'm going to try to do the show anyway and see how it goes. Uh, I'm here with uh, all of my freebies, of course, to give away. Uh, I've got my my fidget uh, fidget keychains. I've got my my pins. I've got my magnets. I've got buttons. I've got phone uh, phone holders, uh, phone stands. That is. I've got pens. I've got blank journals. They are all absolutely free for the taking. Anybody who wants them, you can take one of everything when you show up if you want to. All I ask is that you listen to the podcast, but you are listening to the podcast right now, so I think you are already covered. Um, so, what's coming up? Well, here's here are some of the stories that I have planned for this afternoon. Jody Arias, she murdered her ex-boyfriend, Travis Alexander, and she's now in prison. And she says that, well, she loves it there. Uh, bioluminescence, it's a fascinating trait, giving certain animals the ability to create their own light, literally glowing in the dark. Well, the phenomenon has also been seen in humans, but only with special optics. Well, it's not, uh, it's not visible to the naked eye. Except that is for the handful of very rare and unexplainable cases. One in which a woman's breasts would glow. Strange. Uh, vampires. They are everywhere. Television, film, graphic novels, video games, books, and more cosplay than you can sink your teeth into. 
Well, while our interest in blood-sucking creatures of the night is ubiquitous, it is by no means new. Before vampires sparkled in the sun, spoken in a Hungarian accent, even crossed the mind of Bram Stoker, they have been terrorizing young and old alike. And they've been doing so for almost a thousand years. But while we see the fanged fiends as entertainment, those before us saw them as a very real and evil danger. Later, I'm going to show a couple, uh, share that is a couple of creepypastas with you, some short horror fiction stories. The first is Zacharias Frost's 11 Rules for Idiots Who Bought a Haunted House, and then The Reason I Don't Do Cold Readings Anymore by Kevin Thomas. But first, they seem to fall directly from the above. Stones falling upon unsuspecting people, sometimes by the dozens, and sometimes not from the sky, but from their own home's ceiling. Who or what is throwing stones, and how? If you're new here, well, welcome to the show. It obviously sounds a lot different than it normally does, but if this is your first experience with Weird Darkness, we're actually doing the show live at the Chicago Paranormal Conference. Going to be here until 6 p.m. I have no idea how long the show's going to last today. Probably a couple hours, maybe more, because as people come up and talk to me, I might actually have to stop the stories and talk to people. And you'll be able to hear at least my side of those conversations. But while you're listening, be sure to check out WeirdDarkness.com. I got merchandise there, my newsletter. You can enter contests to connect with me on social media. Plus, you can visit the Hope in the Darkness page if you or somebody you know is struggling with depression or dark thoughts. So, here we go. Bolt your doors, lock your windows, turn off your lights, and come with me into the Weird Darkness. First reports of the untraceable stone throwers started to reach the public in the, seventh, in the 17th century, but it's possible the phenomenon is much older. Since then, little or no progress has been made in finding a plausible explanation for this curious mystery. Most probably the reason, uh, most probably the reason lies in the fact that there has been no proper scientific investigation of it. But whenever it happens, and it happened frequently in the past, police officers and other investigators were baffled. Most researchers who investigated this unusual stone behavior have made a common mistake. They usually don't realize that all these events share similar patterns. It has wrongly been assumed that each untraceable stone thrower incident is a unique occurrence, but that's not the case. Here, we're going to explore some remarkable cases that have been reported worldwide. Perhaps you can figure out what happened and what mysterious force was behind these extraordinary events, unlike everybody else who's investigated it. On October 27, 1901, the Buffalo Express reported that stones were falling on Harrisonville, a small village in Ohio. It began on Sunday afternoon, October 13th, when a small boulder came crashing through the window of Zach Dye's house, a half-mile out of town. The family was at home, and all ran out to see who had thrown the stone on their house, standing in the open and several and several hundred yards from any object enough for a man to hide behind. But no one could be found. The stones still pelted the house, even on Monday afternoon at about the same hour, and they seemed to come from literally nowhere. Suddenly, a piece of rock came through the plate glass door of a store, and even this time, no one was seen outside. On the third day, when the stones began to fly through the air, the entire population flocked to the streets. 
They lined up and stared, attempting to find out who was throwing the stones. Every man and boy in the village was there, and still the dangerous missiles flew through the air. Who could be responsible? In September 1903, an equally baffling incident occurred at Dortrecht in the Sumatran jungle, Indonesia. At about one o'clock at night, I half awoke, hearing something fall near my head outside my mosquito curtain on the floor, the witness to the incident said. After a couple of minutes, I completely awoke and turned my head half round to see what was falling on the floor. They were black stones from an eighth to three quarters of an inch long. I saw the stones were falling through the roof in a parabolic line. They fell on the floor close to my head pillow. I knelt down near the head of my bed and tried to catch the stones while they were falling through the air towards me, but I could never catch them. It seemed to me that they changed the direction in air as soon as I tried to get a hold of them. I could not catch any of them before they fell to the floor. The witness realized that the stones came right through the roof, but there were no holes in the roof. As strange as it might sound, it was even impossible to catch the falling stones. The stones were hotter than could be explained by having been, having been kept in the hand or pocket for some time. They fell rather slowly, he said. It seemed to me they were hovering in the air. They described a parabolic curve and then came down with a bang on the floor. The sound they made in falling down on the floor was also abnormal because, considering their slow motion, the bang was much too loud. In 1913, the stone throwing happened again this time in Belgium, and the phenomenon lasted for exactly four days. When the police received the first report, they began to observe the house. One of the observers reported as follows, I've seen a stone arriving in the middle of a large window pane, and then came others and spiral round the first point of impact, so that the whole of the glass was broken up methodically. I even saw in another window a projectile caught in the fragments of glass of the first hole it made, and subsequently ejected by another passing through the same point. It happened that the stones arrived in a horizontal direction with considerable speed. It would have been, it would have been humanly impossible for anybody to hide in broad daylight in front of that window, which opens onto an empty field 440 yards long. Even the most skilled man, unless he stood quite near the window, could never have succeeded in throwing a stone through a hole of an inch or so. It's very difficult to accomplish even for somebody who aims well. It's been noted that strange stones sometimes fall into closed rooms. Occasionally, they turn in sharp angles in the air to avoid obstacles. Witnesses also recall that they've seen these stones often floating. Some people said that if you grab a stone that fell from the air and threw it away, the rock would return to you just like a boomerang. In 1957, in Australia, a young Aboriginal farm worker at Pumphrey, Western Australia, was attracting showers of stones. Four or five stones rained on him, and two witnesses in a closed tent with the man saw the stones fall at their feet. The scientific explanation for this strange event was rather ridiculous. It was said to have been caused by freak winds. However, in the last decades, similar cases were better reported. In March 1963, a guest host in Brooklyn, Wellington, New Zealand was showered with stones and coins. The bombardment began on March 24th and lasted overnight for over seven hours. The residents and police had a sleepless night trying to find the guilty person. They found none. 
nearly every window was smashed, and people were hit but not seriously injured. No other house was touched. Among the stones were four New Zealand pennies, a large copper coin. The attack was repeated the following night, and on the third night, 600 people were waiting for the show. After three hours, the phenomenon ceased and never restarted. This brings us finally to one of the most remarkable stories. It was in 1928 that the late Ivan T. Sanderson, the founder of the Society for the Investigation of the Unexplained, experienced paranormal stone-throwing. He was on the island of Sumatra, Indonesia, sitting on the veranda when a small, shiny black pebble sailed right out of the darkness. Directly after that, more followed, and Mr. Sanderson inquired who was throwing the stones. From his host, he learned that such stones were falling nightly, but no one ever was hit by them. Our host invited us to pick up some of the stones and mark them with chalk, lipstick, paint, or anything, and then toss them as far as we could into the surrounding garden. We threw the small stones, duly marked, far out. We must have thrown over a dozen such marked stones. Within a minute, they were all back. Nobody with a powerful flashlight or super eyesight could have found those little stones in that tangled mess in that length of time and then thrown them back onto the veranda. Yet they came back, all duly marked by us. The most interesting and particularly unusual falls of stones are those rocks that fall slowly. Many such events occurred, and many witnesses observed them falling slowly, but no one was ever able to find a perpetrator. Worth noting is that the stones were found to be warm. One such incident, for example, took place in Charleston, South Carolina on September 4, 1886 at 7.30 a.m. and also at 1.30 p.m. on the same day. The mysterious missiles seemed to come from a point overhead and were strangely confined to an area of approximately 75 square feet. The phenomenon of untraceable stone throwers and falls inside rooms, a common feature of countless poltergeist accounts and stories of haunted houses, remains unexplained. What unseen forces could be responsible for this strange phenomenon? No one seems to have an answer. Coming up on Weird Darkness, Jody Arias murdered her ex-boyfriend Travis Alexander. She's now in prison and says she loves it there. That story is coming up next. I'm Darren Marlar here live at the Chicago Paranormal Conference, Paracon as they're calling it. We're in Summit, Illinois, just outside Chicago at the Pescadon Restaurant. Just behind the restaurant, you can get uh, to the entrance here. Uh, if you want to get some details about what's happening today, uh, you can find a link on the events calendar at WeirdDarkness.com. We're going to be here until 6 p.m. tonight with all of the fun stuff that's taking place. So many vendors with such just amazing artwork that's here, uh, both beautiful and creepy, and a lot of it beautiful and creepy at the same time. Um, I'm also smelling the food, so I'm going to be hitting that when I'm done with the, uh, with the podcast. And I've had an opportunity to talk with a lot of of people here. Uh, a couple of weirdos actually showed up, so it's always great to, to meet somebody who's already listening, uh, but e even more fun to hopefully make new listeners while I'm here. Gotta take a drink of my water real quick. It's dry. Alright. Uh, lots of vendors here, like I said. Um, also, you've got uh, paranormal investigators here. Uh, there's uh, several speakers that you might what, might be in, uh, might be interested in seeing. 
we got Mike Hellman, Rob Galvin, and Francesca Kelly. There are some seasoned paranormal investigators uh, who have actually done a lot of investigating here through Chicagoland. They discuss personal experiences, some of the equipment that they use, the nature of ghosts. Uh, Bill Casales is going to be speaking today. He is highly regarded as a Mothman expert. Uh, also, the Ghostly podcast. I'm not the only podcast here today, but the Ghostly is actually doing it on the stage for everybody to watch. Uh, the Ghostly podcast features Pat and Rebecca, and uh, they always do a great job. They were here three months ago at the first Chicago Paranormal Conference, and they were invited back. Uh, Bishop Christina Rake is also here. She's from the, uh, the American Apostolic Old Catholic Church. And she's going to be discussing her encounters with demonic possession and a history of demonology. And also Dr. Marina Castina is going to discuss parasitic entities, attachments, and energies. So a lot to take in if you decide to come out to the Chicago Paranormal Conference today. Again, we're here until 6 p.m. Central Time today. Get all the details on the events calendar page at WeirdDarkness.com. All right, moving on to our next story. On June 9, 2008, a 30-year-old salesman named Travis Alexander was brutally slain in his bathroom. His body wasn't discovered for five days. He was stabbed between 27 and 29 times, shot in the head, and then his throat slit nearly ear to ear. His 28-year-old ex-girlfriend was arrested for the murder the following month. Travis Victor Alexander was a salesman and a motivational speaker for prepaid legal services and a devout Mormon. Travis was born July 28, 1977, in California to Gary David Alexander and Elizabeth Morgan Alexander. Travis moved to his grandparents' house at the age of 11, and after his father's death, his seven siblings were also taken by their paternal grandmother. Jody Arias, 28, was a blonde, beautiful and aspiring photographer. Their friends said that their connection was instant when they met for the first time. In September 2006, Jody met Travis for the first time. He was speaking at a professional conference for the company he worked at, Prepaid Legal Services, in Las Vegas. Jody was looking for opportunities with prepaid legal services at the time, and they hit it off really well. Alexander even invited Jody to the company's formal executive dinner as his guest. She was really excited about the relationship. She loved how funny he was, how much fun they had together. Travis loved to take adventures and do uh, to do different things, according to Alexander's friend Sky Hughes. After meeting Travis, Jody broke up with her longtime live-in boyfriend, and the couple maintained a long-distance relationship for a few months as they lived in different states. Travis was in Mesa, Arizona. Jody was in Palm Desert, California. According to ABC News, a friend described Jody as, She's beautiful, she's friendly, has long blonde hair, cute figure. She was very sweet, and during the dinner, they talked the whole time. She seemed to like him as much as he liked her. In November of that year, Jody converted to Mormonism, and Travis baptized her. The relationship was highly sexual and tempestuous. But some of Alexander's friends, who knew Jody and observed them together, tended to have a negative opinion of her, stating that the relationship was usually tumultuous and Jody's behavior was worrying. Jody and Travis broke up after five months, but they continued to be physically intimate and stayed in regular contact. This seemed okay for a while, but the trouble began when Travis started dating another woman. 
Jody slashed his tires, hacked his social media account, and much more out of jealousy. According to People magazine, Travis once told his friend, don't be surprised if you find me dead one day. By the end of May 2008, Travis told Jody to get out of his life forever after getting tired of her antics. On May 28, 2008, just days before Alexander's murder, a gun was stolen from Jody's grandparents' house in a burglary. Jody was living there at the time. The same gun was later used to shoot Alexander. Alexander had planned a work-related trip to Mexico, which was scheduled for June 15th with Jody in early 2008, but in April, Alexander asked to change his travel companion to another, to a, another, a different female friend. On June 2nd, between 1 a.m. and 3 a.m., Jody called Alexander four times, but he didn't pick up the calls, as the longest of all the calls was only 17 seconds. Jody called Alexander again after 3 a.m. They talked for 18 minutes for the first time, 41 minutes for the second time. The last call between them lasted 2 minutes, 48 seconds. Jody then rented a car for a long trip to Utah from Budget Rent-A-Car in Redding, California. She visited her friends in Southern California for a PPL work conference and then met with Ryan Burns, a PPL um, co-worker. Alexander had an important conference call on the evening of June 4th, which he missed. The following day, Jody Arias met up with Ryan Burns in Salt Lake City, Utah, and attended a business meeting for the conference. Burns later said that he noticed that Jody's blonde hair was now dark brown, and she had cuts on her hands. Jody Arias left Salt Lake City and drove to California on June 6th. She called Alexander several times and left several voicemail messages for him. She even accessed his cell's voicemail system. When Jody returned the car, the rental clerk testified that the car was driven about 2,800 miles. The rental clerk also testified that the car was missing its floor mats and had red stains on its front and rear seats. However, the stains were not examined as the company cleaned the car before the police ever examined it. After being unable to reach Alexander, a group of friends went to his home on June 9th. Even his roommates had not seen him for several days, but they believed that he was out of town. After they went inside, they found him in a large pool of blood. His body was discovered in the shower. They called 911. The dispatcher asked if Alexander had been suicidal or if anyone was angry enough to hurt him. Alexander's friends mentioned his ex-girlfriend, Jody Arias, as a possible suspect, stating that she was stalking him, accessing his Facebook account, and slashing his car's tires. While searching at Alexander's home, police found a camera in the washing machine. Upon further investigation, it was found the camera was recently purchased but was damaged during the wash. However, police managed to recover the deleted images, showing Jody and Alexander in sexual poses. The images were taken around 1.40 p.m. on June 4th. Interestingly, the camera had photographs of Alexander before, during, and after the murder. Alexander's last alive photo was taken at 5.29 p.m. that day. Photos taken moments later show an individual believed to be Alexander bleeding on the bathroom floor. A bloody palm print was also discovered on the wall in the bathroom hallway. It had DNA from both Jody and Alexander. Jody Arias was arrested July 15, 2008 on suspicion of first-degree murder. 
She originally told the police that she had not been in Mesa on the day of the murder and she last saw Alexander in March 2008. Two years after her arrest, she finally admitted to killing Alexander, but in self-defense. Hmm. There it is. I'm sorry. <laughs> I lost my I lost my my uh, my place there, folks. Sorry. Two years after her arrest, she finally admitted to killing Alexander, but in self-defense, claiming that she'd been a victim of domestic violence. And when she was questioned by Mesa detective Esteban Flores. She told him that she'd arrived at 2 a.m. and that they had slept and had sex. She claimed that later on, while she was taking photographs of him in the shower, they were attacked by two masked intruders, a man and a woman, who wanted to kill Alexander. She said that they told her to leave and threatened to kill her family if she ever mentioned the incident to anyone. No one believed her story, and she was charged with first-degree murder. Jody Arias took the stand in her own defense on February 4, 2013. She testified for a total of 18 days. On the first day of her testimony, she told about being violently abused by her parents, which began at the age of seven. She testified that she rented a car in Reading for budget because the website gave her two options. One was to the north, the other was to the south. Her brother lived in Reading. The second day of the testimony was a bizarre one. She claimed that her sex life with Alexander included oral and anal sex. She kept telling about their sex life and how it was difficult and painful for the first time, and while she considered him while while she considered their form of sex to be real sex, Alexander did not, as they were against Mormon rules. She played a tape she uh, played a tape of their phone sex, in which Alexander said that he wanted to zip tie her to a tree and have anal sex with her while she was dressed as little riding hood. Jody seemed to respond enthusiastically to that idea. She also claimed that Alexander secretly found young boys and girls sexually attractive, and she tried to help him with his urges. The forensic expert team testified that an examination of Alexander's computer found no such evidence of pornographic material. She kept on going for 18 days and testified that he was angry at her and even called her bitch and hit her but when the dysfunction of their relationship reached its climax, she killed him in self-defense. In an interview, Jody said, No jury is going to convict me because I am innocent. You can mark my words on that. But during her testimony, she said that at the time of the interview, she had plans to commit suicide, so she was extremely confident that no jury would convict her as she didn't expect any of them to be there. For most of its part, the prosecution pushed the fact that Jody killed Alexander in a vengeful rage after learning that he had moved on with another woman. In fact, he was about to go on vacation with his new girlfriend, which he initially planned to go with with Jody. But none of Jody's story worked, and in March 2013, a jury convicted Jody of first-degree murder. But the jury couldn't reach a unanimous decision on whether to sentence her to death. Jody Arias was finally sentenced to life in prison without parole. After four hours of lying to police, she began to sing. She laughed before the interrogation. She talks to herself, does a handstand, and shoves paper down her pants. Jody attended Alexander's memorial service, even though she knew everybody suspected her of the killing. Alexander's friend kept an eye on her and noted her, her uh, bizarre behavior. 
Alexander's friend claimed that he did not seem sad, or, and uh, neither did she shed any tears. Jody is currently serving her sentence at the Arizona State Prison Complex. In 2016, a phone call between her and rapper Kareem Lefty Williams was leaked to the media. Lefty, a rapper, produced a video about her in order to bring awareness about PTSD and domestic violence, according to Radar Magazine. The phone call's 15 minutes long, and she claimed she's getting lots of love behind bars. If that's what it's like, if uh, this is what it's like to be hated, keep hating, she said. I have so much love coming in my direction, I can't even respond to it now. In 2019, April filed an appeal, arguing that she did not have a fair trial for various reasons, including that the trial judge in her case failed to protect her from the massive, pervasive, and prejudicial publicity during the trial. And on March 24, 2020, the Arizona Appeals Court upheld her murder conviction. Coming up on Weird Darkness, my next story is bioluminescence. It's a, it's a fascinating trait giving certain animals the ability to create their own light, literally glowing in the dark. The phenomenon has also been seen in humans, but only with special optics. It's not visible to the naked eye. Except, that is, for a handful of very rare and unexplainable cases. One in which a woman's breasts would glow. I'll tell you that story here in just a moment. Let me grab a sip of my water here before we continue. You're probably hearing all that noise in the background, and if you didn't catch it at the beginning of the show, you're wondering, what is going on there? Well, I'm actually at the uh, Chicago Paranormal Conference at Par- in, uh, this Paracon in Summit, Illinois, uh, just outside of Chicago here. Um, and I'm doing this live, so uh, you never know what's going to happen. Uh, you get to hear all the bloopers <laughs> as they happen. Uh, if you want some details about the Chicago Paranormal Conference, you can uh, get all the details on the events calendar at WeirdDarkness.com. We're here until 6 p.m. tonight, so you still got over four hours to come out and have some fun with us. It's only a dollar to get in here, and uh, well, you've got um, a whole bunch of whole bunch of uh, different vendors here. There are over 40 vendors. Um, I don't know. I don't really call myself a vendor because I don't sell anything. I just give everything away for free. But you still have at least thirty-nine others. There you go, uh, vendors. Uh, they, and they got some some really cool stuff to, to show off and, and sell. Uh, if even if you don't plan on buying anything, just coming in here for for that dollar, just to see it all, is definitely worth it. Just there. But uh, you've all, you've got paranormal investigators here. You've got psychics. Uh, you can get aura readings. Tea leaf and tarot readers are here. They've got raffles going on throughout the day. There's live music, which you might be able to hear in the background there. Uh, we've got food here as well, and some very special guest speakers are right in the next room to us. You've got Mike Hellman, Rob Galvin, and Francesca Kelly, who are all seasoned paranormal investigators in Chicagoland. you got Dr. Bill Casales, who is an expert on the Mothman. The Ghostly Podcast is going to be doing their thing live a little bit later on today. Uh, Bishop Christina Rake, she's here from the American Apostolic Old Catholic Church talking about demonic possession and a history of demonology. So that she has actually had personal experiences with those. And Dr. Marina Castina is going to be discussing uh, parasitic entities, attachments, and energies. So I don't know how they're packing all of this into six hours, but somehow they're doing it. So you still have uh, a lot of stuff to see if you can come out. 
to the Chicago Paranormal Conference in Summit, Illinois. Again, uh, just get all the details on it. You can find out, you can get the location, all, all, everything you need to know. Just go to the events calendar at WeirdDarkness.com and you can click on the link there to get all, all the details that you need to know. Okay, let me get another sip of water before we continue on with our next story. Okay, here we go. <clears throat> there are several stories of human luminosity. It's where a person gives off a colored glow. It's been known for many years that all living creatures produce a small amount of light as a result of chemical reactions within their cells. Bioluminescence is a side effect of metabolic reactions within all creatures. The results of highly reactive free radicals produced through cell respiration interacting with free-floating lipids and proteins, and the excited molecules that result can react with chemicals called fluorophores to emit photons. Well, in 2009, Japanese scientists captured the very first images of human bioluminescence using ultra-sensitive cameras over a period of several days. Their results show that the amount of light emitted following a 24-hour cycle at its highest is in the late afternoon, lowest late at night, and the brightest light is emitted from the cheeks, forehead, and neck. Strangely, the areas that produced the brightest light did not correspond with the brightest areas on thermal images of the volunteers' bodies. The light is thousands times weaker than the human eye can perceive. At such a low level, it's unlikely to serve any known purpose in humans whatsoever. Human bioluminescence has been suspected for years, but until now, the cameras required to detect such dim light sources took over an hour to capture a single image, and so were unable to measure the constantly fluctuating light from living creatures. There have been cases, though, of people being seen to glow with a strange light bright enough to light up a dark room. One of the most quoted cases is that of an Italian woman named Anna Monero. While in the hospital, she was an asthma sufferer, it's an, and it's reported that when she was asleep, a blue glow would emanate from her breasts as she slept. The glow would last for several seconds at a time. Many doctors visited uh, Mrs. Monero, but none could produce a satisfactory explanation as to what they were witnessing. Back in 1934, the case of Anna Monero was featured in an Italian magazine that I'm not, not even going to try to pronounce, as well as the London Illustrated News, and it appears that doctors at the time decided she was of a highly sensitive nature. When she was emotionally upset, her visceral functions became unbalanced, her combustion increased, and the radiating power of her blood was given a terrific boost. But that's not very convincing. There was another documented case mentioned in the English Mechanic from 1869, and this told of an American woman who, on going to bed, found that a light was issuing from the upper side of her fourth toe on her right foot, and it would last for about 45 minutes at a time. Strange, the doctors weren't quite so excited about seeing this as they were seeing Anna Monero's glowing breasts. Glowing people might be a phenomenon with similarities to those who reportedly could generate electricity within their bodies or even start unexplained fires. There's the case of Angelique Cotton, a Normandy peasant girl who became known as the Electric Girl. 
The phenomenon began in the town of La Perrier, uh, France, on January 15, 1846, when Angelique was 14. Angelique, together with some other girls, was weaving silk gloves on an oak frame when suddenly the frame began to shake as if it were alive. The girls couldn't keep it still no matter what they tried. They became distressed and called the neighbors, who didn't believe them, told them to carry on with their work. So they returned, slowly, one by one, to the weaving frame, which remained still until Angelique came near. Then it again began dancing around. All the girls were afraid, but Angelique also felt a strange attraction towards the frame. When Angelique's parents found out about the incident, they thought she must have been possessed, so they took her to the presbytery in order to have her exercised. But the curate would have none of that. Instead, he wanted to witness the strange phenomenon for himself, and after doing so, and convincing himself it was physical, advised her parents to take the girl to a medical doctor. Meanwhile, Angelique's bizarre condition worsened. When she attempted to sit in a chair, it was pulled or pushed away. Such was the power of the force that a strong man couldn't hold down the chair. The heavy 60-pound table floated up from the floor when she touched it. If she tried to sleep in a bed, it rocked, and the only place that she could rest was on a stone covered with cork. Whenever she went near objects, they moved away from her, even without apparent physical contact. The merest touch of her hand, apron, or petticoats sent things, even heavy furniture, flying off or bouncing up and down, even if somebody was firmly holding them down. People who were near her, even without any contact, would frequently get electric shocks. The effects of her condition, though lessened when she was on a carpet or waxed cloth, intensified remarkably when she was on the bare earth. Metals, it seems, were not affected at all indicating that it was a form of electricity, and it was an unusual kind. Her powers sometimes stopped completely for two or three days, and then started again without warning. When she was tired, the effects were reduced. Although Angelique was probably the best-known electric girl, there were others, such as Mademoiselle Emmerich, sister of the professor of theology at Strasbourg, who also had this electric power. The problem originated from a serious fright, after which the girl fell into a state, a state of a deep trance, accompanied by a great degree of clarity. Her body was so charged with electricity, she became, in effect, a human electric battery, and she gave electric shocks to whoever was near her, as with Angelique Cotton, often without touching them. Incredibly, she was able to give her brother, Professor Emmerich, a sharp shock when he was several rooms away. He ran into her bedroom, and as soon as he entered, she said, laughing, Ah, you felt it, did you? Unfortunately, Mademoiselle Emmerich's illness ended in her death. Coming up on Weird Darkness, vampires are everywhere. Television, film, graphic novels, video games, books, more cosplay than you can sink your teeth into. And while our interest in blood-sucking creatures of the night... Um, even though it is ubiquitous, it is by no means anything new. Before vampires sparkled in the sun, spoke in a Hungarian accent, or even crossed the mind of Bram Stoker, they have been terrorizing young and old alike, and have been doing so for almost a thousand years. But while we see the fanged fiends as entertainment, those before us saw them as a very real and evil danger. Medieval vampires, coming up on Weird Darkness.
I'm here live at the Chicago Paranormal Conference. I got some people at the table right here. Say hello, everybody. Hello. Say, say, I told you there were people here. You didn't. You thought I was lying to you. But uh, since since they're here, I'll go ahead and tell them that everything on the table is absolutely free. Uh, you can take one of everything if you want to. Uh, we've got we've got the uh, the blank journals over there. We've got pens. We've got the phone holders, which is what I'm using over here for my phone. Uh, we've got the buttons, the pins. Those are uh, those are fidget keychains. They do absolutely nothing. They're just fun to play with, right? Um, there is a there is a button on the side though. Um, some of them will actually turn on if they don't turn. Yeah, so you, you got one that actually works. So you maybe find your your way in the dark to to your car at night or something like that. I've got magnets there in the front. I got stickers, business cards on the sides. Uh, feel free to take take anything and everything that you like. All I ask is that you try to listen to the show at least once. Yeah, and even if you even if you don't plan on it, lie to me. Just 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 tell me. Oh yeah, I love your show. So, but yeah, drop me an email if you do listen. Let me know. Let me know what you think. Um, so yeah, thank you very much for stopping by. I appreciate it. So you guys just get here. Okay. So you got a lot to look at then, don't you? Oh, okay. All right. Checking out any of the speakers today? Great. All right. So, all right. Let me get a sip of my water here before I continue. Oh, wow. So, yeah, we do have a lot going on here. Um, I'm actually, there's actually two levels here at the Chicago Paranormal Conference. I'm, at the, I'm on the uh, top level. Uh, the bottom level has a ton of stuff down there. It's so crowded, and uh, the same thing's happening up here. But there's so much to see that you really do want to check it out. We're going to be here until 6 o'clock tonight. It's only a buck to get in, so you definitely want to check it out. Uh, if you go to WeirdDarkness.com, click on the events calendar. You can find a link, which will take you to all the information you need about the conference. You can check out what some of the speakers that are going to be here as well. And, uh, and again, I'm here uh, for the whole time, and like I just told all of those people, everything on my table is absolutely free. So if you want to come out and just see me, if nothing else, just to take some free stuff away, that's more than fine. That's, that's totally cool. I'm sure they'd love to see it. For a dollar? I mean, that's, that's a pretty good deal right there. So anyway, I hope, I hope you'll be, come out if you, if you can. If you're in the Chicago area, I would love to see you. Okay, <clears throat> let's, let's move on here to medieval vampires. Let me get another sip of my water. Got a scratchy throat today for some reason. All right. So, vampires. They have captured the popular imagination in recent decades. And, well, after the booming success of Twilight, uh, well, you can be hard-pressed to find a young adult book or TV show that doesn't feature the monsters. Often, now with the idea of good vampires, who usually fall in love with an unassuming high school girl. But ideas of vampires, they've been around for almost a thousand years, if not earlier than that. Often, graves identified with objects suggesting a burial to stop vampires tend to occur in, in uh, Eastern Europe, although there are numerous examples in the West as well. It can sometimes be unclear whether the individuals buried uh, are, uh, as vampire suspects were believed to be cursed with vampirism before their deaths, or that the objects at burial were taken as a precaution to stop the corpse rising again as a vampire coming to seek their revenge. Often, skeletons are found with pieces of iron, as it was believed vampires could not touch iron by driving iron nails into the body, or placing an iron object across the corpse, or even placing iron bars on the tomb. It was 
uh, it was hoped that this would prevent the vampires from getting out of their grave when they awoke. In a small Czech town, there is an 11th century graveyard, which contains 14 skeletons thought to have been considered vampires. They either had their heads cut off, their hands and legs tied, metal spikes driven through their bodies, or rocks placed on top of their bodies. Most were young adults, both male and female, and seemed to have died around the same time as each other. Did they die of some epidemic, and precautions were taken in the belief that the deaths were supernatural? Or was there some kind of vampiric equivalent to the Salem witch hysteria in this small medieval town which resulted in these people being killed? It was common, as well as using iron, to place heavy weights, usually stones, on top of their bodies, as again it was believed this was a way to prevent vampires rising from their graves. Stones could also be placed in the corpse's mouth. It was believed vampires could tear their way through funeral shrouds with their teeth. In fact, what is potentially the earliest grave of a suspected vampire comes from 4,000 years ago, again in the Czech Republic. The grave was situated away from the other graves in the burial site, and the victim, a male, was weighed down with two big stones on his chest and head. As this is so similar to medieval examples of anti-vampire weapons, it was widely considered, particularly by the media, to be the earliest example of the legend of vampires. However, as with many things, we can never be sure, and many are hesitant to place such a label on such an early burial. Some medieval Icelandic sagas feature Draugr, uh, which has been translated in the past as ghost, but reassessment of the material more recently has led to the creatures being described as closer to vampires than ghosts. These Draugr uh, were aggressive, and their main objective being to attack the living, drive them insane, and then infect them with vampirism to make their victims join their ranks. The idea of vampiric creatures certainly has not been confined to Eastern Europe, even if this translation to real belief in these creatures may have been more prevalent there. Possible vampires also occur in early medieval English writings. For example, William of Newborough, uh, written, uh, written circa 1198, talks about walking corpses, which match Eastern European folk ideas about vampires. His revenants, as he called them, are corpses bloated by gases and blood-like fluid, and are frequently associated with outbreaks of plague. These vampiric graves that William describes being exhumed were found filled with blood and gore. To prevent the vampires from walking again, their hearts were ripped out and the bodies burnt. William rectifies his recounting an ancient folk belief with his Christian values by claiming that it was Satan who had reanimated the corpses. Even after William's time, Folk tradition dictated that evil dead should be buried face down or pinned with a stake to prevent them from walking. This could include criminals who could be thought to want to return and haunt the living. Similar ideas about vampires being the work of the devil still occur in the next century. Thomas of Cantepre and a, a Dominican monk writing in the, mid, in the mid-13th century recounts this tale of his manual for preachers. In the town of Novellus, I saw a virgin worthy of God. She rose in the early morning to go to church, observing the stipulated hours for prayer. It happened one time that the, that the dead body of a certain deceased man was brought to the church in the evening without her knowing about it. Getting up in the middle of the night, the virgin went to the church and found the dead man, but she was hardly afraid, 
or just a little. So she sat down and began her prayers. When the devil saw this, he looked upon her with malice, and entering her the dead body, he moved it at first in the coffin. The virgin therefore crossed herself and bravely shouted to the devil, Lie down, lie, lie down, you wretch, or you have no power against me. Suddenly, the devil rose up with the corpse and said, Truly, now I will have power against you and will revenge myself for the frequent injuries I have suffered at your hands. When she saw this, she was thoroughly terrified in her heart, so with both hands she seized a staff topped with a cross, and bringing it down on the head of the dead man, she knocked him to the ground. Through such faithful daring, she put the demon to flight. It's unclear whether the corpse was knocked to the ground due to the power of God, as later legends going into modern superstition often stipulate how religious symbols can drive away vampires, or simply due to the weight of such a hefty staff. For us, as modern viewers and listeners of vampire tales, these accounts and ideas about medieval vampires certainly seem, at least to some, to be closer to our modern descriptions of zombies rather than vampires. The danger always lies with corpses and are, they're, that are already dead and buried, with the object being to prevent the corpse from rising from the dead to haunt or endanger the living. This is certainly very different to our modern conception of a creature that was transformed from a living to an undead creature through what is essentially a method of poisoning, to live forever, sucking blood from its victims and cowering from the burning sunlight whilst possessing supernatural powers, including incredible strength, speed, and vulnerability. However, hopefully this small spotlight has give it an interesting insight into the fears and superstitions of medieval people. Some of the stories were intended to be just stories, something to be read and enjoyed as a fiction or a parable. But as with the early modern witch hunts, sometimes these stories could translate into real palpable fear in medieval communities, which we can try and unpick today when studying the vampires' graves. The mythology of vampires is well known throughout the world. Most countries have some variation on the vampire legend. Remarkably similar, too, are the ways in which vampires can be dispatched, or at least prevented from rising from the grave to plague the living. Modern science has usually dismissed these tales as folklore, however, the recent evidence has emerged showing that our ancestors did indeed take these stories seriously. Over the past few decades, an increasing number of medieval burials have been excavated, showing incredible brutality performed on the corpses that exactly matches the methods folklore said must be used to keep a vampire safely in its grave. And these graves are not only being found in the vampire's traditional home of Eastern Europe and the Balkans, but in Western Europe, too. In 1991, an archaeological investigation of the ancient church of the Holy Trinity in Krostyov, Slovakia, discovered a crypt burial in the presbytery. The body had been buried in a coffin, reinforced with iron bars, held to be one method of keeping a vampire buried, since vampires allegedly could not tolerate the touch of iron. In addition, stones had been placed on the victim's legs, and the torso severed from the legs. The find has been dated to the 16th century, 
The burial is considered somewhat unusual because of its location in a church, but it's been argued that the extra sanctity of the church may have been thought by those who buried the victim to have been uh, more likely to have kept the corpse in its grave. In 2009, at Drosko in Poland, an archaeological investigation of a medieval cemetery turned up something quite unexpected. Three graves were discovered in which the bodies had been subjected to very unusual treatment post-mortem. Two bodies of middle-aged adults had iron sickles placed on their throats. The body of a younger adult had been tied up and had a heavy stone placed upon his throat. This is in keeping with folklore, traditionally sharp iron elements being held to be an anathema to vampires, hence the placement of the sickles as a measure to ensure the alleged vampire would not rise again. Another method of keeping a suspected vampire in their grave was believed to be the placement of heavy weights upon the body, and the positioning of heavy stones upon bodies has been found in a number of vampire burials. The cemetery has not been fully excavated. Archaeologists do expect to find similar burials in future years. In 1994, on the Greek island of Lesbos, near the city of Mytilene, archaeologists investigating an old Turkish cemetery found a medieval skeleton buried in a crypt hollowed out of an ancient city wall. This was not an unusual discovery, however. The post-mortem treatment of this body was very much unexpected. The corpse had been literally nailed down in its grave, with heavy iron spikes driven through the neck, pelvis, and ankle. The use of iron and the practice of stalking, of uh, staking down a corpse are both well attested in vampire folklore. The body was also certainly that of a Muslim, believed to be the first time a corpse of a person other than a Christian had been found treated in this fashion. In the early 1990s, archaeologists found what's believed to be the first vampire's graveyard, an entire cemetery of vampire burials. About 30 kilometers north of Prague in the Czech Republic, in the city of Selikovic, which I'm sure I'm, I'm butchering the, pr the pronunciation of. Regardless, 14 graves there have been excavated so far with metal spikes driven through their bodies or heavy stones placed upon them. The graves are believed to date from the 11th or 12th century. Most of the victims were young adults of both sexes. It appears the victims all died at around the same time, possibly in an epidemic, but it's unclear why the villagers thought these particular individuals were at risk of becoming vampires. One of the most well-publicized cases of recent years, as a Google search will quickly show, Bulgaria is no stranger to vampire burials. More than a hundred have been discovered in the past century, but the bulk of those were in remote rural areas. Sozopol is one of Bulgaria's most popular Black Sea tourist resorts, so the discovery of two skeletons with iron spikes jammed to their bodies caused a sensation. The bodies are believed to be about 700 years old and were located buried near a former monastery. Archaeologists have confirmed that this practice was common in Bulgaria up until the 20th century, and Bulgaria subsequently has become the center of interest for those studying vampire burials. As has already been noted, the discovery of vampire burials has been common in the Balkans and Eastern Europe, the heartland of vampire mythology. However, until recently, they were unknown in Western Europe, but that's changing. 
as archaeological examinations of medieval cemeteries in the West is starting to reveal that people here were just as afraid of the dead returning to the pla- to a plague the living. A well-publicized discovery in 2006 on the island of Lazaretto, of, yeah, Lazaretto Nuovo, near Venice, confirmed that Italy had its own vampire burials. The skeleton of a woman dating from the 16th century was discovered in a cemetery of plague victims. She'd had a large brick rammed into her mouth prior to burial. That is in keeping with medieval folklore, which held that vampires literally chewed their way out of their burial shrouds. So preventing them from chewing that, uh, for, from doing that, was seen as an effective way of stopping them from rising from the grave. The vampire burial phenomenon struck even deeper into the West with the discovery of two skeletons at Kilchashim in Ireland between 2005 and 2009. Officially described as deviant burials, the skeletons of a middle-aged man and a man in his 20s were discovered lying side by side with rocks jammed into their mouths. The discovery caused a sensation in Ireland and the UK and became the subject of a TV documentary released in 2011. It's been argued that the victims may have been considered plague carriers rather than true vampires because their early burial in the 8th century predates vampire legends in Europe. However, the vampire burial tag has since well and truly stuck in the public consciousness. If complacent Britons had thought their ancestors were far too sophisticated to be taken in by vampire legends as primitive peasants in Eastern Europe had been, they were in for a shock. It was revealed in 2010 that a deviant burial had been found in the Nottinghamshire town of Southwell in 1959, attracting much publicity in the British media. A long-lost archaeological report compiled during a construction of a new school detailed the discovery of a skeleton dating from between AD 550 and 700 with metal spikes jammed through the heart. Oh, excuse me, jammed to the heart, shoulders, and ankles. The placement of a spike through the heart in particular attracted public interest because of its long association with vampires and myth and legend. Archaeologists have, in fact, thrown cold water over the idea that the man was considered a vampire because the burial predates vampire legend in Europe. But the idea was seized uh, by the public and, and their imagination and inspired new research into vampirism in Britain. Up next, uh, we'll, ch- we'll check. Uh, we change over to some horror fiction with a couple of creepy pastas. The first one is called Eleven Rules for Idiots Who Bought a Haunted House by Z- uh, Zacharias Frost. We'll have that story for you coming up next. Well, we're here live at the Chicago Paranormal Conference, and uh, we're going to be here until 6 p.m. Uh, I won't be broadcasting live until then. Uh, I don't think my voice will last that long, <laughs> but I'll uh, do what I can to finish what I've already planned. But we're going to be here for a while with so many vendors. There's so much artwork and uh, just interesting stuff to see, jewelry. Uh, you can also uh, get your uh, your tarot cards read, uh, auras read, tea leaves being read, uh, plus there are also some amazing speakers that are scheduled to be a part of the festivities today. We got Mike Hellman, Rob Galvin, and Francesca Kelly. They are some seasoned paranormal investigators from Chicago. They'll be, uh, they'll be sharing some of their own personal experiences, some of the equipment that they use, the nature of ghosts. 
Dr. Bill Casales is a Mothman expert, one of my favorite cryptids of all time. So uh, when I get done here, if he has not already spoken, I'm, I, I really hope that I can, I can see him do his thing. Also, I'm not the only podcaster here. The Ghostly podcast is here as well, and they're actually going to be doing a show on stage for people to watch them do their thing. I'm just at my table doing doing a show just because I can. Uh, I'm not actually doing an actual show show here. I mean, with lights and presentation and everything, but the Ghostly podcast is doing that. We've got Bishop Christina Rake. She's from the American Apostolic Old Catholic Church. She's also the author of God and the Paranormal, Mediums, Ghosts, and the Afterlife in the Bible. And she's going to discuss her own personal encounters with demonic possession and a history of demonology. And then we also have Dr. Marina Castina, who will, who, uh, will discuss parasitic entities, attachments, and energies. So a lot going on here. It only takes a dollar to get into the door. Um, everything, you can look at everything for free, of course. The speakers are free, from what I understand. Uh, you've also got food here. If you uh, if you don't have any dinner plans, well, you can come here and have some dinner and also hang out with, with all of us here at the Chicago Paranormal Conference. And uh, let's, oh, oh, raffles. They also got raffles going on, so you might actually win some prizes. Walk away with some, some free stuff. Speaking of free stuff... The Weird Darkness Table, of course, is here. That's where I am. And uh, I've got tons of fun stuff that I'm giving away absolutely free. I've got the fidget keychains that are becoming really popular. In fact, it looks like I need to, to replenish them on, on the, uh, the table here. So I'll, I'll do that here as uh, soon as I'm done with the, with the, with the podcast. We've got the, uh, the uh, official Weirdo pins. Uh, they're actually... They're supposed to be for our official weirdos, our patrons, but I never could figure out a good way to get them delivered. And they're just, they're too cool just to let them sit in the garage, so I brought those out here. We've got buttons, we've got um, phone holders, uh, phone stands, uh, we've, we've got the Weird Darkness pens, we've got blank journals, we've got magnets, we've got stickers, and all of it's absolutely free. You can take uh, you can take all of it if you want to, take, take one of each. Uh, all, all I ask is that uh, people just try and listen to the podcast once and most people said oh absolutely of course this that's my kind of that's my jam and so I, I love hearing that and i actually have had a few weirdos stop by and and say hello which is always fun uh i i really did hope that i would see some today especially being so close to chicago that people would make their way out but i also enjoy making new friends and if you and i have never met if you've never seen me face to face uh please if you're in the chicago area please come out i would love to see you and uh, maybe you, even if you have a story, you can tell me your story uh, about what something paranormal that's happened to you or somebody you know. All right, so let me take another sip of my water, and then we'll continue on uh, with our first creepypasta. All right. Uh, <clears throat> I don't normally mix up the creepypastas and the true stuff at the same time, but, well, being here at the Chicago Paranormal Conference, it just sounded like it'd be kind of fun. This is called The 11 Rules for Idiots Who Bought a Haunted House by Zacharias Frost. Or Zacharias Frost. Well, oh, by the way, before I get into this, I, I, I understand there's a lot of noise in the background. Uh, if you're listening to Weird Darkness for the first time, this is not what it normally sounds like. I'm doing the show live from the Chicago Paranormal Convention. I don't normally do the show live either, even if you... 
even if I'm on location somewhere, I'm usually pre-recording it. But today I thought, eh, I'm going to try it live, see how it goes. Uh, got some new equipment with me today to, to give it a shot, and hopefully this is all working. I have no idea. Uh, I may, may waste three hours doing this and then find out none of it got, none of it got broadcast. Uh, that'll be a lot of fun. <laughs> so anyway, uh, let's, let's get started here. <clears throat> 11 Rules for Idiots Who Bought a Haunted House by Zacharias Frost. Well, you really screwed up this time, didn't you? You found a gnarly deal on a beautiful home that almost seemed too good to be true, and you jumped at it. And now that you're all moved in, you've started to notice some anomalies. You know the type. The spooky, dooky anomalies of the supernatural persuasion. Bumps in the night, doors opening and closing by themselves, auditory hallucinations of voices and whispers... It's more common than you might think, but not everybody realizes the danger. These signs could be proof that some forsaken lost souls inhabit your property. Maybe the previous grandmother self-immolated in the, act- in the attic. Maybe dear old dad went suddenly insane and repainted the house with the blood of his children, or mom tried seducing demons in the basement. If this sounds even vaguely familiar to you and you're looking to the good old internet for help, well, you've come to the right place. You see, I have this friend, well, had this friend named Nathan. A couple months back, Nathan found a house for sale in southern Georgia. It was nestled along a remote stretch of woods just outside of Waycross. It was a historical area, an old colonial-style home, just under 5,000 square feet, six beds, six baths with white picket fences and a dozen acres. The quintessential American dream house by all accounts. The price was unbelievably low, but after Nathan contacted the real estate agent, he found the price that he had seen listed was indeed the price that was being asked. Now, for most people, I imagine this would have raised some pretty big red flags, but Nathan was an idiot. The confident type of idiot that believed machismo was substantial for conquering all of life's obstacles. I know it's not kind to speak ill of the dead like that, spoiler alert, but I'm just trying to give an accurate portrayal of the kind of person Nathan was. You know, the alpha male who hits on your girlfriend, lives at the gym, and of uh, and falls in lust with his own selfies. Yeah. For people like Nathan, friend is really just another word for ego reinforcer. He was cocky and often let pride get the better of him. His wife, Janelle, was actually my ex-girlfriend from a while back. Bit of a slut, but, but practically a supermodel. They had two kids together, Natalie and Mason, who were both spoiled brats. Again, I'm just trying to give an, an honest perspective here of them, you know, in hopes that we may all learn something from what happened. You see, what happened to Nathan, which I'll get to a little bit later was something which I believe could have easily been avoided if only he had followed a few simple instructions. After the funeral, I got to pondering on the matter and realized that what we all really need is, well, a set of rules to follow if you believe your house is haunted. So, rule number one. When looking to purchase or rent a house, always ask for the history. Odds are, if a house is being offered at a way below market value, there's a good reason for it being that way. 
Nathan didn't do this. And he thought that the under-market price was simply the universe handing him something he didn't really earn, as it often seemed to do. Nathan, of course, jumped at the offer, and within a few weeks, he and his family were approved and moving in. I volunteered to help them move, and, you know, to be honest, the house was absolutely gorgeous. Things were great for them at first, but Nathan soon started noticing some old, well, odd occurrences. It started with this knocking sound. It seemed to reverberate all over the home at odd hours. He said he could never seem to pinpoint where it was coming from, and it never seemed to originate from the same place twice. Eventually, he just chalked it up to the house settling, but that was just the beginning. Rule number two. Trust your gut. Your home is the last place you should feel uncomfortable. If you get that inkling of discomfort in the back of your mind that never seems to fully dissipate, pay attention to that. It's probably your subconscious trying to warn you. Nathan tried ignoring uh, those sounds, told his wife that, eh, it's just normal, the wind. He comforted his children when they felt scared. He had two dogs, Rusty and Sailor, both of them black labs. Both seemed to become very anxious after moving into that house. Nathan did his best to get medication to help the dogs relax, but it didn't seem to help much. So that brings me to rule number three. Along with your gut, you should also trust your pets. Animals have instincts far greater than humans. It's been said that man is the only creature who will sense danger and still wander into it. <laughs> Animals have a sense for the supernatural. Dogs and cats in particular, if you find them growling at what appears to be nothing or constantly staring into specific areas of the house, pay attention to that. Odds are they can see something you can't. Nathan told me that Rusty, the older of the two dogs, would pace the hall each night for hours. He said it was like he was standing guard over something. On more than one occasion, Rusty suddenly blurted into a ferocious bout of barking and snarling. Nathan had come out into the hall but never found anything. He grew concerned for Rusty and took him to the vet, but the vet confirmed he was in good health. Meanwhile, Sailor, the younger dog, slept at the side of Mason's bed each and every night. The poor boy soon developed crippling nightmares that would torment him relentlessly, and Sailor seemed to sense that. Each time Mason would wake up screaming, Sailor would be there to try and comfort him. And that segues perfectly into our next rule. Rule number four, beware the nightmares. Young children are, well, they're kind of similar to animals in the way that they seem more, percep they seem more uh, perceptive, you know, to things that adults aren't. This one can be difficult because, well, there are many root causes of nightmares with things like anxiety, depression, and, and other mental illnesses. The telltale sign is whether your child suddenly develops them soon after entering the home. Poor Mason had absolutely horrific dreams, and night after night he would be tormented by them. He often spoke of the blurry man that came to him while he slept and whispered terrible things. He even said that sometimes he'd see the blurry man while he was awake, but never more than a quick glimpse, and always in the shadows or outside in the woods. 
Nathan and his wife were worried that maybe Mason was schizophrenic, but multiple doctors confirmed, nope, that wasn't the case. They even tried giving Mason sleeping pills, various supplements. They burned incense to help him sleep more peacefully, and it worked for a while, but Natalie started having nightmares too. Rule number five, try to determine what kind of spirit you're dealing with. If you see flashes of a small child running through the halls at night, or orbs spiraling in the air, then odds are your ethereal neighbor is rather benign. Some people even discover they rather enjoy life with a spectral roommate, and find their antics to be kind of interesting. Most believe that spirits who pass away before completing what their soul desired will become stuck in a sort of purgatory. Many are scared, confused, angry, but some, primarily young children, seem to be almost jubilant at times. Most of these are unnerving, but altogether harmless. But then there's the other spirits. Rule number six. If you or any member of your family develop inexplicable bruises, cuts, or lesions, then don't, don't take them lightly. This should be a massive red flag. It's a very bad sign. If you feel as though that you're being attacked as you sleep and wake up with unexplained scratches or wounds, get the heck out of that house, honestly. A malevolent spirit capable of inflicting physical wounds is not something to be trifled with. Odds are it's a demon, and honestly, that is the best case scenario. There are other non-Abrahamic-related entities that could be responsible too. I mean, they're very rare, but if encountered, well, I'm afraid even my handy set of rules here aren't going to be enough to stop them. Natalie and Mason, they suffered multiple scratch marks, wounds, even a few bruises that almost looked like bite marks. Nathan's wife, Janelle, was also subjected to these attacks. The children's teachers at school began to notice and became quite worried for their safety. Obviously, their first thought wasn't paranormal, but rather that the children were being abused at home. Only when social services threatened to remove the children from his custody did Nathan finally agree to move them out of the house. Janelle and the kids moved in with her mother a couple hours away, and Nathan was left all alone with the dogs. Rule number seven. Let people know what's going on. Yeah, I, I know. The thought of admitting to a close friend that you believe your house is haunted, it's a daunting task, but it's usually better than the alternatives. The modern world rarely takes these claims seriously. We put ghosts in movies and video games, but when someone actually claims to see one in real life, we're not so quick to believe them. Technology and science have led us to believe that we're safe, and that's our folly, but it's also a topic for a different day. This is yet another rule that Nathan, I don't know why, but didn't abide by. The worse that things got for him and his family, the more secluded he became. On numerous occasions, he phoned the police, saying that he believed somebody had broken in, but they never found any evidence of it. Eventually, they even put him on a blacklist and warned that any further contact would result in legal trouble. Well, rather than tell his parents or brother or any of his friends what was going on, he retreated into himself. He became fidgety and paranoid at times, refusing to return phone calls and texts from his loved ones. He just broke contact, and things only got worse. 
rules eight and nine kind of go together. They're, they're in the same category, although one is a little more extreme than the other. Rule number eight, if you suspect something's up, it doesn't hurt to perform a cleansing. Like I said earlier, the modern world has little time to entertain the notion of ghosts and the supernatural, but that shouldn't ward you off. If you're unsure about whether your home's being haunted or not, then a routine cleansing can do wonders for you. I'm willing to bet there are mediums and priests in your town that can get the job done, too. Even if you can't find anybody local, you can always just go online and find instructions how to do it yourself. It's not as effective that way, but hey, it's better than nothing. And then rule number nine, similar to rule number eight, if you're really feeling as though you are in danger, get someone to perform an exorcism. It's the step nobody, of course, wants to take, but desperate times calls for desperate ne- for uh, desperate measures. Priests and spiritual leaders are are those are your go-to for these kinds of things. Even if you yourself aren't religious, these people honestly do know what to do. They they know how to help. There's some evidence Nathan was attempting to do this, but it's really unknown why exactly it didn't work out. Maybe he second-guessed himself and thought that he could handle it, or maybe his ego took control once again, I don't know. Nathan had been collecting evidence for a while and had amassed quite a stash of clues. He had audio recordings which relayed banging on the walls and footsteps in the attic. He took multiple videos, but none of them really showed anything, except for the last one, but by that point it was too late. In his journal, he also wrote that he experienced items in the house levitating on several occasions, but... Well, sadly, he had no recorded proof of that. Rule number 10. This is the big one. Whatever you do, don't try to antagonize the spirit. This should really go without saying, but but angrily challenging the spirit or or daring it to manifest, that is a bad idea. As you might have guessed, Nathan in his unlimited stream of testosterone decided to do just that. He got really drunk one night, began ruminating on all that had been happening. Nathan was always a skeptic, but even he couldn't ignore the psychological impact on his family, whether it was imagined or not. He realized his relationship with his children and wife were being heavily strained, and his new house had become a place of hostility. Well, that made Nathan very angry. So Nathan stood up, shouted at his empty house for the spirit to come forth and face him. He was met only with silence, so he shouted again. Never once did the spirit answer his call. After a few more verbose challenges, he broke out into a bout of laughter, probably believing himself to look ridiculous. Apparently, not everybody who was watching felt the same. Nathan managed to stumble into bed not long after that, and Uh, He was out cold within a couple of minutes. Nathan had kept a security camera in his room in hopes of capturing proof, and that night he found something. At around 2.13 a.m., Nathan is seen beginning to stir in his sleep in the security video. He grunts and speaks briefly, but the words are unintelligible. Suddenly his eyes sprung wide open in the bed and began glancing around the room. Nathan appeared to be struggling, but but his body didn't move. It's believed that he was suffering an episode of sleep paralysis, which left him temporarily paralyzed. His eyes continued to dart rapidly around the room. Then, 
Well, something happened that no one who saw the video could explain. The bedroom door slowly rolled open, but the darkness of the hallway was all-consuming. Nathan's chest began frantically pumping up and down, his eyes stretched wide open. Something was then seen moving in the hall. Now, it could have been chalked up to a trick of the light at first, but then a hand was seen reaching through. It was gnarled and spindly, like the wretched malformed appendage of some abysmal uh, adenism. The figure slowly sauntered through the doorway, its tall, dark silhouette nearly grazing the top of the doorframe. It had no definitive features, appearing only as a hooded, humanoid individual. No eyes or face, just a shadow made corporeal from Nathan's deepest nightmares. Poor Nathan. He was actually heard mumbling on the video, whimpering frantically, but it but in his paralyzed state, he wasn't able to fight back or flee. He could do absolutely nothing but watch in absolute horror as this thing approached him. It stopped at the foot of his bed and just stared at him for about a minute. Nathan continued to hyperventilate and didn't appear to blink even once during the entire ordeal. The thing then finally moved closer and it leaned down only a couple inches away from his face and appeared to whisper something. It was too quiet for the mic on the camera to pick it up, but needless to say, it did not make Nathan feel any better about the situation. Suddenly, the thing lashed out with its twisted hands, constricting like pythons around Nathan's throat. In his paralyzed state, he couldn't even struggle against his shrouded attacker. Within a minute, Nathan's chest stopped moving, and his eyes fell still. The entity retracted its hands and just stared at him for about a minute. Then, as if taunting those who could see the footage, it looked directly into the camera. It whispered something again, but again, it was too quiet to discern what it was saying. And then, as quickly as it had appeared, it waltzed out of the room and vanished back in the darkness. Nathan was found by his wife, Janelle, a few days later, and she called the police. After an autopsy, Nathan was determined to have died via strangulation, much as what was shown in the video. Cops scoured the premises. They found footprints from the intruder. However, the footprints, they were soon matched to a pair of Nathan's own boots. The police, of course, were not so quick to believe that Nathan was simply killed by supernatural forces. So they conducted interviews with neighbors, friends, family members, but, well, none of them seemed capable of or, or, or motivated enough to have done it. There were zero signs of breaking and entering. Nothing had been stolen from the home. They came to me. They conducted an interview here as well, but, of course, that was a futile effort. I mean, yeah, sure. I mean, the fact that Janelle was my ex-girlfriend, that was reason enough to suspect me at least a little bit, but, but I quickly dissuaded their accusations. I mean, Nathan was my friend. I mean, despite him not really being a good friend, he, he was still a friend. Well, what kind of friend bones your girlfriend behind your back anyway? I'm not bitter ab about it, though, at least. Not as far as the police are concerned. My alibis were solid, and, well, that's good enough for them. This brings us to my final rule, number 11. Make sure you exhaust all other options before coming to the conclusion 
that your house is, in fact, haunted. If only Nathan had taken a little more time to investigate his home and himself more thoroughly, maybe he'd still be alive today. Maybe he would have found the many wireless speakers hidden in his attic to play the sounds of knocking. Maybe he would have found the patches in his air ducts that leaked mild doses of hallucinogenic drugs into his home. Maybe he would have detected the dog whistle alarm that caused his dogs to react so strangely. If he bothered to check himself, he might have found trace amounts of succimethonia, a paralyzing toxin that, once ingested, will leave the person immobile yet conscious to all pain. It, it would have been difficult to find, as even coroners do not normally test for the substance unless specifically requested. No matter how you really slice it, this entire ordeal really comes back to Nathan himself. If only he'd been a better person and not constantly demeaned his peers at every turn. If only he hadn't been so stubborn and proud. If only he hadn't gone behind my back and boned my ex-girlfriend, thus ruining our future and sending me into the spiraling depths of crippling depression, maybe, maybe I would have helped him. So you might be wondering, is this my confession? No, no, no of course not, not. This is only my list of, uh, of suggestions and rules for how things might have turned out differently for Nathan and his family. These are all hypothetical explanations. They're in no way to be considered incriminating evidence to be used in court against me or anyone else for that matter. Besides, if this really was a confession, then well, that'd make anybody who listened to it an accessory to murder. Hmm? And we certainly wouldn't want that. I hope you can understand that uh, I do hope uh, that we can trust each other in this regard. After all, I, mean, I, I have really good software for tracing IPs, and the modern web makes it incredibly easy to access them. We wouldn't want your house to suddenly become haunted now, would we? Alright. I have another story for you in just a second after I kill this fly. Ah, I missed him. <laughs> He's been bugging me that whole story. He was on the microphone, he was on my script, he was on my computer. I, I had a hard time concentrating just to keep him going. <laughs> okay. So I do have one more story to share. It's, a, it's another short story of fiction. It's called The Reason I Don't Do Cold Readings Anymore by Kevin Thomas. And uh, I'll share that with you up next on Weird Darkness. But uh, uh, just a quick reminder, I am here at the Chicago Paranormal Conference. I'm actually doing the show live here at the conference, Paracon in Summit, Illinois. It's at the Pescadon Restaurant, uh, which I am told the Pescadon is also haunted, I think. I don't know that for sure, but I think I read that somewhere. Anyway, uh, you can find details about the conference itself and what's going on here at WeirdDarkness.com. Just click on the events calendar, and you can find uh, all the details there. You can also find out where the Weird Darkness road trip will be taking us next. But uh, we've got a lot of crazy people here. So people, if, if you like weird, strange, paranormal, dark material, well, this is the place to be today. And they do have food here, so you can have dinner here. And it only costs a dollar to get in the door. So you're actually doing, uh, you know, you actually, 
you got a lot of entertainment for just a buck. Uh, the food is, is uh, going to be charged separately, of course. But still, a dollar just to get in to see everything. I mean, you got over 40 vendors here. Uh, sharing all of their wares and their their art and everything else. It's just it's really great stuff. And of course, I've got all my free stuff as well. I've got my uh, my fidget keychains. I've got my magnets, my pins, buttons, pen, uh, writing pens. I've got the uh, the the blank uh, journals. I've got uh, something I, something brand new that I brought today as phone stands so you can uh, set up your phone uh, and and watch videos on it and those are branded with weird darkness as well i've got my magnets and stickers everything here of course is absolutely free that's what i do when i go on the road trip i bring all of the stuff with me and just give it away so people will at least know about the podcast that's what i'm doing this for all right so uh let me take another sip of my water before i finish this i've got one last story here and this is called The Reason I Don't Do Cold Readings Anymore. Now, it's by Kevin Thomas. <clears throat> I don't do cold readings anymore. I don't tell fortunes. I don't read tea leaves. And I will no longer contact the other side. Look, look, don't judge me, all right? It was an easy gig. I mean, the first time I did it, it was a joke. I did it just to impress a girl. <laughs> You've been there, right? It was something I'd read about online, and eh, I thought I'd give it a go. Cold reading. I don't need to tell you that there's really no such thing as a psychic. It's just extremely convincing, educated guessing. I know, I know, I know. If you believe in this stuff, you've definitely got a story to tell me that starts, oh yeah, well, most are fake, but this one time... And then you'll tell me of some incredibly specific thing that they couldn't possibly have known. Honestly, though, if I could have been there when you got your revelatory message, you gave them everything they needed. They just connected the dots. You see, people aren't desperately unique. Not really. <laughs> Heck, you only need 23 people before there is a 50% chance two of them have the same birthday. You give me a crowd of 50 people, I will find someone born in August with an important L in their life. Luck, Leeds, Louise, and I'll have everything I need. It's not really all that hard. People like a sense of pattern in their lives. It gives them a sense of control. That's why people like conspiracy theories. It's hard to think that everything really is as stupid and meaningless and random as experience would imply. When someone flies a plane into a building, it's easier to think it's just another cog in some grand scheme than, well, face up to the fact that actually it really doesn't take all that much other than a screw-up and a box cutter to completely ruin everything. Similarly, when you're holding the hand of a five-year-old girl long after her long black hair has fallen out and she's looking at you for help and you can't, maybe it's easier to think it's just a crappy part of a bigger plan. You're both just changing lines for a bit, but you're heading to the same direction, same destination. So, all right, look, I'm not defending myself. I'm not saying uh, that I'm not a, a, a jerk in all of this. I'm just saying that I never wanted to deceive people. I mean, not maliciously. I just thought it was, well, I thought I was providing a service, you know? An outlet, maybe. So, when I did my cold readings, I got quite good at them. 
it's pretty simple, really. You're, you're, just a, you're just a salesman. If you can sell a used car, you can sell a cold reading. It all boils down to a couple of things. Confidence and knowing your audience. Like, all right, I'll tell you a story. One of the first times I did it was in a bar. It was a chain bar, one of those where the menu was the same in every town. Happy hour hasn't changed since 2008. I was being introduced to a group of my girlfriend's friends, and so I was on my best behavior. Captain Charming, you know. So when Maria, all olive skin and deep brown wavy hair, said that women in her family always had a sort of gift for talking to the beyond, I saw my chance. So I read her. My girlfriend was 24 and they were university friends, so I guessed that Maria was likely a year either side maximum. She was thus probably a child of the early 90s, young enough that likely her parents were still alive, but that she may have lost a grandparent or two. There were no rings on her fingers, so I guessed she wasn't married. And the way she was poured into that red cocktail dress pretty much counted out the chance of her being a mom. So grandparents were the way in. The most common first letter and first names are J for men and A for women. For men, this is especially useful. It takes care of all the Johns, James, Jacks, which have had staying power during the generations. There's someone who wants to speak with you. Maria's eyes flicker with excitement. That's a good sign. I'm getting an A. No reaction at all from Maria. Luckily, it's an easy conversion. Uh, no, 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 I'm sorry, not A, it's a J. Another flicker. She takes in a sharp breath. Bingo. I think it's James or uh, John. John, yes, John, my grandfather. He's here with us now. And most people at this point are still pretty skeptical. Maria was taking the bait with gusto, but most people would still be sat back in their chairs at this point, single eyebrow raised. Uh, now you got to hit them with something a bit more personal. With grandparents, it tends to be a pretty positive relationship that you're playing on. I mean, if it's a dead partner, well, there can be all kinds of baggage to unpack, but dead grandparents, uh, usually that's usually a big bag of happy memories. So, that's the card you play. If you're wanting to talk to grandparents, it's because, well, because they want to feel that same safeness again. First, though, gotta pull them in with something that seems specific. I see him watching over you, but I see a blackness in his chest or abdomen, that kind of area. It's a fair shot, usually. Something north of 85% of deaths of men over 65 are due to some form of complication around that area. But he wants you to know he's at peace, and he says that he sees you struggling with something. Uh, a choice, perhaps. He, he's saying that you should follow your heart and that you shouldn't worry about the money. See? It seems really personalized. But actually, when are we not toying with some kind of big choice? Even if it's not imminent, people are always juggling the idea of moving a, to a house or a job or changing something up with their partner, and what big choice doesn't have financial implications? Or, moreover, who isn't worried about money literally all the time? Same as ever, 
feels personal, but applies to everyone. Maria is almost breathless at this point, and she starts asking really direct questions that would expose me if I tried to answer them honestly. No, 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 he's, he's fading. Oh, he's gone back over. Boom. And that's how I got started. But then it got out of hand. You see, Maria, had she had bought the whole act. She told a friend who told a friend who told a friend. And soon I had people ringing me and texting me, asking for readings. And then they started offering me money. Well, to cut a long story short, that's how I ended up on a stage here, earning $2,000 for a two-night performance in the conference center of a stupid airport hotel outside Manchester. The first night was like any other night. The venue was about a third full. I was wearing my black suit with the open-collared blue velvet shirt. Very 80s Butlin's entertainer, uh, entertainer outfit. I was scanning the room for easy marks. Someone clutching... I'm sorry, the fly just got it. <laughs> that stupid fly is in my way. All right, so... The first night was like any other night. The venue was about a third full. I was wearing my black suit with the open-collared blue velvet shirt. Very 80s Butlin's Entertainer outfit. I was scanning the room for easy marks. Somebody clutching at jewelry or a picture. The ticket asked them to bring something belonging to the person that they wish to contact, so the second you see somebody with their hands full, you know you've got a gullible mark. And there she was, nervously spinning her wedding ring with a photo resting on her lap. Dead husband. My bread and butter. I sat with her and, well, there's a reason I don't do these anymore. I played it safe at first. I'm getting a J. She took a deep breath and started to react. Before I could get a chance to read a reaction, though, another voice called from the other side of the room. It's him, came the voice. Sometimes you get someone who is a bit over-enthusiastic. Somebody who's so desperate to get in touch with their beloved, they'll assume that whatever voice is coming through is trying to get in touch with them, regardless of who the current mark is. That's why I stay away from sensing the letter R. Between the Richards and Dicks and Roberts and Bobs, half the sodding room thinks that they're being contacted. I got ready to politely ask the interrupter to sit back down, but there was nothing. There was no one. I turned back to the window. She was stealing herself to get in touch with her J. I caught a brief glimpse of what I thought was the name Alan on the wedding photo in her lap and was ready to fix my pitch accordingly when she when that voice came back again. This time just a single word rang through so loud it arrived with a blinding white. Him! My eyes focused again on the widow in front of me. She was taking little shallow rasps, rasps of, of breath and staring at me with eyes like a startled deer. I spun around to try and find the source of the yell, but there was no one. Did anyone else hear that? The crowd, assuming it was part of the gig, simply shook their heads. Catching my breath, I tried to get back on track. No, not a J, it's an A. Slam, another bullet train of sound through the back of my mind. Him! It's him! I was knocked back a few paces. Panting, beads of sweat formed on my, on my forehead. I pulled in my tie to loosen it. Please! I pleaded with the crowd. Try not to shout when the voices are coming to me. It makes it hard to concentrate. 
What had been amused half-smiles at what they assumed was showmanship becoming pu- uh, became puzzled, silent exchanges with the people sitting near them as I asked the silent crowd for quiet. I went a third time to speak to the widow, but the voice rung out again, popping in my ears as though it had been trapped in a bubble. Third row! Red shirt! Him! He killed me! I was still catching my breath, panting heavily. I scanned the crowd, and sure enough, there he was. Third row. Red. Casual fitted shirt that looked expensive. Short brown hair and a modern professional cut framing a neutral, polite smile. Light brown chinos and brown leather shoes. Arm draped around the shoulders of a nervous-looking blonde woman. I couldn't see her face as she held an unbroken look with her lap. Her hands gripped the blue velvet clutch on her knees. Her legs were pinned together with vice-like strength. Her shoulders drooped under the weight of his arm. Even as I met his eye, he didn't let that neutral salesman grin drop. It was the grin of the man who'd sold the car and is going to sell the paint job. Him! It's him! It's him! My knees cracked with the punches of the sound and I fell to the floor. I could hear the gasps in the audience. People were out of their chairs, craning their necks and crowding to see what was happening. I told you that this gig is all about salesmanship. This was me losing the pitch. They wanted enthusiasm, not seizures. Back on my feet, the widow, well at the back of my mind, I managed to rise zombie-like to my feet. I raised a pointed finger at Mr. Red Shirt. I'm getting a voice, I croaked. I pinched the bridge of my nose and put out an arm, evangelical style. What... what's your name? Gemma. My name is Gemma. She says her name is... Gemma. Does that does that mean anything to you? Redshirt's grin spreads. Sorry, pal. Nothing to me. That was his only reply. She says she knows you. Redshirt laughed. Never known a Gemma in my life. His companion raised her head at the mention of the name. Her eyes were wide and pricked uh, with tears. Gemma's voice in my ears got louder and shriller and more panicked. I could feel my heartbeat in my eyes. Soon, I was simply parroting her words. She's saying... She's saying you killed her. You killed her and buried her body out the back of Bleacher's Woods by the A-55. She she says you, you were waiting for her after she finished work and you came up behind her and clocked her around the head and put her in the back of your white Ford Transit. The crowd was bustling by now. This was not what they paid for. They wanted financial advice from Granddad or to know that little Robbie is happy in heaven after he came off his bike and fell under the 681 bus to Salford. Not to have some sweating charlotte and shouting accusations at innocent audience members. People were grabbing their bags. They were starting for the doors. I couldn't stop now, though. By now, it was just a puppet for Je- I was just a puppet for Gemma's voice. You thought I was out cold, you s- jerk. But I was just barely conscious. I felt everything. I felt you tearing my clothes. I felt the way you scraped my underwear against my thighs when you were too weak to tear them off in one. 
I felt the dirt as it landed on my back. I heard you pat down the soil before one type of darkness gave away to the next. The steadfast grin on Redshirt's face was back. I was alive, you bastard. Not even a hint of his grin slipping. Gemma's voice was fading, like someone being dragged away in a noisy bar. Her voice replaced by the din of silence. No, not yet. You have to warn her. Amy, Amy. And with that, Gemma was gone. And like a puppet with the strings suddenly cut, my shaking knees buckled, and I fell to all fours and emptied my guts over the worn and dirty brown carpet flooring. People were streaming out now, muttering criticisms under their breaths. Worst show ever. Macabre nonsense. I told you we shouldn't have gone to the cin- I, I told you we should have gone to the cinema. Redshirt strong-armed his partner out of her seat and started marching towards the door. I reached out from my prone position to try and grab her hem, the hem of her skirt, but she was already out of reach, and I could barely stand. Through the sweats and the panting, I looked up to see Redshirt ushering the woman out of the door. I thought I saw tears in her eyes. In the confusion and bustle of the crowd leaving the room, I thought I saw her reach out towards me. But Redshirt had a firm grasp on her shoulder. He stared back at me, that same salesman grin on his face. And he winked. And they were gone. I stumbled to my feet, standing in my own vomit as I started towards the door. I burst into the foyer, desperate to try and find Redshirt and his crying companion. But in the bustling crowd, I couldn't see either of them. I just stood there. A wave crashed through again, a final hurrah from Gemma. Useless! Complaints about my performance flooded the venue, and they were forced to cancel the second night's performance. Of course, I'd already paid for the hotel room, so spent the second evening sat at the bar, trying my best to forget about Gemma. I was on the third whiskey when a tail-end news report caught my ear about a missing woman. The prim newsreader stated, Police are appealing for witnesses in the disappearance of Amy Hochstetter, a woman from the Salford area who was last seen leaving the Kays Hotel Conference Center with an unidentified man. She'd been attending an event hosted by alleged psychic Theo Capewell, an event that she'd attended because, according to friends, she'd been hoping to contact her sister, Gemma Hochstetter, who disappeared last year. Anyone with information should contact... Well, the rest of the report was lost to the din of the bar. Like I said, I don't do cold readings anymore. They're not cold enough. Alright, before I end the, uh, the show today, a quick reminder. I'm here live at the Chicago Paranormal Conference. It's Paracon in Summit, Illinois, just outside Chicago at the... the uh, Pescadon Restaurant. And we're here until 6 p.m. tonight with all the other crazy people who love things creepy, strange, macabre, supernatural. Uh, if you want to find details, you can find them by clicking the link on the events calendar at weirddarkness.com. That's weirddarkness.com. Go to the events calendar. You can get all the details about the Chicago Paranormal Conference. Again, we're going to be here till 6. It only takes a dollar to get in the door. I still have all of my free stuff that I'm giving away. And I'll be doing that as long as it lasts. And I brought a lot with me. So I shouldn't have any problem with that. Uh, you can check out all the other vendors that are here. Um, you've got paranormal investigators, psychics, aura readings, tea leaf and tarot readers. Raffles are here throughout the day. They've got live music, which you can hear in the background there. 
Uh, there's food here, some guest speakers and everything. So come on out. If you're, if you're in the Chicago area, I'd love to see you. Uh, it's just definitely something that you want to be a part of if you can possibly get here. So in the meantime, thank you for listening. If you like the show, please share it with somebody you know who loves the paranormal or strange stories, true crime, monsters, or unsolved mysteries like you do. And please leave a rating and review of the show in the podcast app you listen from. Doing that helps the show to get noticed. You can also email me anytime with your questions or comments through the website at WeirdDarkness.com. That's also where you can find all of my social media, listen to free audiobooks that I've narrated, shop the Weird Darkness store, sign up for the email newsletter to win monthly prizes, find other podcasts that I host, and find the Hope in the Darkness page if you or somebody you know is struggling with depression or dark thoughts. Plus, if you have a true paranormal or creepy tale to tell, you can click on Tell Your Story at WeirdDarkness.com. All stories in Weird Darkness are purported to be true unless stated otherwise, and you can find source links or links to the authors in the show notes. The Mysterious Stone Throwers was written by Ellen Lloyd for Ancient Pages. The murderess who loves life in prison is from Bugged Space. The Strange Case of the Woman with Glowing Breasts is by Mike Perry for 67 Not Out. Medieval Vampires was posted at Just History Posts. Medieval Vampire Burials is by Michael Affleck for Listverse. The Creepypasta 11 Rules for Idiots Who Bought a Haunted House was written by Zacharias Frost. And the short fictional horror story The Reason I Don't Do Cold Readings Anymore is by Kevin Thomas. And again, you can find links to all of those in the show notes. And now that we're coming out of the dark, I'll leave you with a little light. John 14, verses 2-4 through four. My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. And a final thought from Barry Neal Kaufman. The way we choose to see the world creates the world we see. I'm Darren Marler. Thanks for joining me in the weird darkness. Thank you.